Hello and welcome to On Point. This episode features an interview with Chris Gartner, partner at Integrity Partners and co-CEO and CFO of DHC Acquisition Corporation. Chris has more than 25 years of experience in underwriting, advising, and mergers and acquisitions from some of the best technology companies in the world. He has been a lead advisor on over 100 equity and M&A transactions, including some of the largest deals in technology, and has led IPOs for companies such as Google and OpenTable. Holds a BS in electrical engineering from the United States Military Academy at West Point, an MS in electrical engineering from Columbia University, and an MBA from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Chris has served as an infantry officer in the U.S. Army with the 82nd Airborne Division, the 18th Airborne Corps, and 1st Special Operations Command. In this episode of On Point, Chris Gartner talks about how as a first-generation American, he felt a need to serve the country. He discusses his experiences in Ranger School and serving in the Army's 82nd Airborne Division. Chris also speaks about his passion for flying and diving that has continued to this day since his time at West Point. In addition, Chris provides insight on moving from the military to civilian life and shares advice on how to make the transition to business successful. Now, please enjoy this interview between Chris Gartner and your hosts, Tim Shaw and Lance Dietz. Welcome to On Point. I'm Tim Shaw, class of 2004. And I'm Lance Dietz, class of 2008. And today we're joined by Chris Gartner, class of 1984. Chris, how are you? Doing great. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for making time for us. Let's get into our first segment, AAR, or for our non-military listeners, After Action Review. In this segment, we'd like to touch on specifically what other veterans can learn from you, your process, and your journey. Chris, could you please talk about your decision to attend West Point and what you gained from that experience? Sure. So maybe a little bit of background. I'm a first-generation American. My parents came over from Europe after World War II. And when I was a little kid, they basically had me traveling around the world and seeing all different types of countries. And we had relatives behind the Iron Curtain. And candidly, I (laughs) really didn't have a choice. I mean, I sort of felt that I needed to serve this country and felt really blessed to be part of it. So at a very early age, I felt that uh, I was going to West Point. How was um, your experience at West Point? I loved West Point, I have to say. I mean, don't get me wrong. There were certainly challenges. There were certainly times when I felt, did I make the right choice, especially during midterms or finals? But overall, I loved the academy. And it was because, obviously, the people that I was surrounded with, they were very like-minded, challenging themselves, always looking to better themselves and doing it for a higher cause. I don't think I could have found a better group to, to really be around. And secondly, the academy really let me follow every passion that I had. I was able to become a private pilot. I wanted to fly ever since I was a little kid also. So I, for $10 an hour, I was renting an airplane and flying around and became a scuba instructor uh, when I was there as well. So something I still do today, I just continue to certify people on my vacations. So it's, uh, it's something I've continued to do uh, along with flying. So it was really a place that I felt I could flourish. Amazing. I barely survived West Point and didn't do flying or or scuba. How did you manage to handle everything? I think it was a matter of just time discipline. I think that's one of the biggest lessons you learn from the military is you can manage your time very effectively. You're getting through your meals in, what, 30 seconds? It just makes it a lot easier to get on with the rest of your day if you're just organized. And it's something that I didn't really think about 
and you just naturally absorb how quickly you need to do things, where you spend your time, focus on what matters, and then move on to the next topic. So I felt in terms of the military, that was one of the big lessons. The other being just the ability to work hard. When I got out of the military, that was one thing I always knew. I might not be the smartest guy, but I always knew I could work harder than everybody else. Working hard is a common theme amongst the speakers we have. It's perhaps the most universal theme. <laughs> it's the one thing you can control. There's only so many variables you can control. And I knew, okay, look, I know I can get along on almost no sleep, almost no food. I don't need to be warm. I need very little to support. And at the end of the day, that seems to win the contest many times. I'm sure talent's involved and saw that you were an electrical engineer, juice major. So juice major, scuba, pilot, what other activities did you do at West Point? I was on the marathon team also. I ran track with Coach Basil. He taught me that pain was something that, yeah, you just got used to in terms of running. And I have to say, between track and then the marathon team, putting in miles at the academy, just running and running, really prepared me for every school that came after. Ranger school, I have to say, physically, I got hurt during ranger school. I got a stick in my eye in Florida, so I recycled. But as far as the physical nature of Jump master, uh, airborne, then jump master, pathfinder. I never found anything physically difficult because there was so much running involved, and I really didn't feel I was getting pushed. I mean, don't get me wrong; it was, it was, it was difficult, but from the standpoint of preparation, I felt I was in pretty good shape. So West Point um, work ethics, one thing; managing time is another. And I'm curious if there were any other themes or mentors that you got from West Point. Yeah, a couple of things that I thought were pretty important. The first is, and this this is almost a bit of a disadvantage at times, is uh, having been in, in banking for many years, interacting with a lot of very prominent CEOs. The one thing that I found on the military side, the military CEOs who I've seen and done business with, is that they're very self-aware. And it almost becomes limiting because they recognize their own shortcomings and perhaps don't put themselves out there as much as some other CEOs who are not self-aware, not nearly as capable, but just don't know what they don't know and don't know their own limitations. So at times I feel like the military can actually be a disadvantage in terms of people being able to get to that next level. We all look at ourselves and say, hey, am I really prepared? Do I really wanna raise my hand and say I'm the guy for this? When in reality, everybody else is much less qualified, but much quicker to put up their, their hand and say that they're the one that should be selected. The other piece that I would just say is that a lot of times West Pointers are trained just to force, you know, go right through the wall and just put your head down, smash against it until it breaks. And that can work at times. But there's also times when you just want to say, wait a minute, let me just see if I can walk around this. And uh, again, the military has proven that, okay, if I put my head down, I know I can get through anything. And sometimes there's an easier way to do it. Fascinating. Thank you. Were there any mentors or close friends that really helped you through the West Point journey? Yeah, there were. I had some classmates that even today are just absolutely spectacular people. I had my, my marathon coach, Colonel Hansen, was, was a big inspiration. Again, Mr. Vikes from scuba diving. <laughs> he really helped me, I think, just focus on some things that were outside of the military, but at the same time, I guess, very synergistic with what we were doing in the military. So yeah, the answer is, as I said, you're surrounded by few individuals that perhaps stick out, but in looking at West Point, it was really everybody, you know, the leadership, I think there were times where I felt, wow, am I ever going to be able to measure up to the legacy that the people before me at West Point and just trying to hold myself to that standard was a real challenge. So you talked about Ranger School and Jump Master being relatively easy. Could you talk about why you branched infantry in 82nd? 
Yeah, well, I would say I don't want to be quoted as saying Ranger and Jumpmaster were easy. I, I would say that from a physical standpoint, running made it easier. But the cold, because I went to Winter Ranger, I have to say I had no idea how cold an individual can actually get. And it was around that time when we had, unfortunately, somebody passed away from hypothermia in, in the class. So it was cold. It was really cold. And w- what I learned from Ranger School was, again, the biggest lessons are you sort of look at yourself and say, all right, everyone wants to think that they're hard and they're tough and they can push through things. But it's not until you really find your physical limitations and you have to look at yourself and then look, you know, that commitment to others on your team to push to the next level. And I felt that that was something, and again, the invaluable lesson from Ranger School, it wasn't the ability to march, it wasn't rucking, it wasn't land nav, it wasn't knowing how to tie all the different knots, uh, throw the Molotov cocktail, it wasn't any of that stuff, but that was fun. It was really, okay, I am dead tired, and somebody's got to carry the M60 and the tripod, and everybody's hurting, let's figure out which guys are going to stick up their hands and really pull through for everybody else. And you just learned a lot about yourself and you learned about other people. Last ranger school question. Were you a hungry ranger or a sleepy ranger? I was a hungry ranger. For whatever reason, the sleep didn't bother me that much. But wow, I was fighting there looking for any scrap that you could possibly find. (laughs) Trash cans everywhere. We were looking for it everywhere. And could you talk about your army experience and what was it like 82nd? As I mentioned, West Point for me was sort of a a great experience in terms of just the opportunities and all the things that we learned. And when we got to the Army, it was a bit of a different situation, simply because now we were with the troops. We were managing a set of individuals that perhaps didn't hold themselves to the same standard as many of the officers that we've been used to dealing with. So it was a little bit of an adjustment in that regard. And as far as managing people, I probably learned a lot more from managing soldiers in 82nd than I did prior to that at West Point. You just can't learn that. That's something you have to sit in front of an enlisted person and figure out what motivates them and make sure you're pushing all the right buttons to get the tasks at hand done. It was very different than what I expected. You had to not only give the order, but you also had to make sure that it was followed up on and ensure that it was done in the right way. So there was just a lot of checks and balances that perhaps were a little bit less efficient than what I thought I was going to experience in the army. Loved the troops, uh, really got along with them. Uh, Again, I think there's a big difference between peacetime and wartime officers and soldiers. And I think you just have to learn how to manage either one effectively. And what led to your decision to transition from the army? My father, as I mentioned, came over from Europe. He was part of the brain drain after World War II, founded a research development company, and he had a heart attack unexpectedly. So I felt that it was important for me to, well, didn't really have an option, needed to get and help run the family business. So we were developing custom computer systems, primarily for the Department of Defense. And while I really enjoyed being an infantry officer, my father had previously convinced me that ultimately technology is going to matter in future battles and developing next generation systems and being part of that was vital. And I just thought it was going to be a few years down the road when I was doing that, not so soon. So he had a heart attack. I started running the family business and built that into a company that we ultimately sold to General Electric. Awesome, Chris. We're going to transition here to the next segment, the sit rep or the situation report. And this is where we dive into kind of what you're doing now and the path that you had after the military. You just alluded to it, but you've had 
a long career in finance. And I'm curious, kind of when you're at West Point and even in the military, was that a career that you were thinking about and specifically going into the investment banking world? Not at all. I heard about investment banking, but I never thought that that was going to be my path. I really thought I was going to be an infantry officer. A number of years down the road, my father would tell me he wanted to retire and then I would join the family business and ultimately take that over. But all of that was accelerated. And what happened was he fortunately left us with some very interesting designs that I was able to execute on and develop some proprietary technology that all of the prime contractors wanted to incorporate into their various bids for the midlife uh, F-16 updates and the European fighter aircraft. And they decided to come and make offers to buy the business. So that's ultimately why I went from soldier to running this business to then selling it much quicker than I had anticipated. And then following that, is that when you went to business school and then got on the investment banking um, career path? Yeah. So even when I sold the business, I ran the vision for them for a couple of years and felt that I wanted to do something a little bit different. And while I enjoyed the technology quite a bit, I didn't enjoy the day-to-day management. And I felt being able to step back and sort of look around a little bit, having time to do that would be helpful. And that was the reason for going to business school. So I also felt, okay, if I'm going to business school, I should go address an area where I felt of weakness. And that was finance because I was very technically oriented. And I just remember during my own deal, just understanding all the bits and pieces and valuation was something that I didn't hire a banker. I just did it myself, which looking back was probably a mistake, but it was something that I felt I needed to get up to speed on and enjoyed it while I did it. So that was the reason for the MBA. And and before I even finished my MBA, I applied to Columbia for a double E master's in engineering because I didn't know if I was going to go back to running a business or if I was going to try to make my way to do something else. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I mean, you then went on to have a incredibly successful career in investment banking, managing, you know, director at top firms, Bank of America, Credit Suisse, and then I think Global Head at Rothschild. And just curious, investment banking has quite a bit of attrition, especially in the early years. Super curious kind of what kept you in that career field um, for that long. I, I was able to marry two things that I really enjoyed. The technology, uh, being able to deal with technology companies, and at the same time, finance, because it really boiled down to numbers. And so we were able to interact with the who's who of the technology universe. And the people that you, again, the challenges of really figuring out, okay, what is the trend that's going to take place over the next 10 years and how to position yourself in front of that trend and which companies should you be targeting in terms of trying to do business and advise them and then create a roadmap for those businesses, not only capital markets, but also on the M&A side so they can realize that vision themselves. And I really enjoyed that work. So I would say it was very different than the military with regards to the day-to-day operations, but incredibly long hours, which is something, as I said, never really bothered me. And also working with highly motivated individuals and small teams, which was, again, something that I took back from my military experience is something that I really enjoyed. So I would say that while there are some differences, obviously, day-to-day, the fundamental 
of doing something you enjoy with people who are motivated to get the mission accomplished was very similar. Were there any particular like companies or transactions that you look back now and just can't believe that you had the opportunity to work on and advise that, that particular company or that transaction that sticks with you to this day? Well, actually, there's a number of them. Uh, every transaction that I worked on, I felt I was lucky to be part of. Google's IPO was was a big one. I was a lead banker for one of the lead banks that worked with them at the time. And we did something very different in terms of the IPO using a modified Dutch auction as opposed to traditional, traditional IPO. And that whole experience was, was eye-opening. It's also one of the reasons why I ultimately thought doing a SPAC made a lot of sense. And then working with Jeff Jordan on Open Table, you know, after the financial crisis, markets were in turmoil. And at the same time, we felt, hey, look, this is a business that's different enough that we can reopen the markets with it. So that was quite interesting. At the time, the largest software technology deal was Symantec, working with John Thompson, who was the CEO of Symantec. That was incredibly fascinating because he's gifted in terms of his ability to lead people. And I actually took a lot away from that transaction. I almost felt I should have been paying him during that time, just listening to how he, his command of the business and command of capital markets uh, was a fascinating time. And then more recently working with a company called Essence, actually in Canada, a transformative online retailer. So again, there's, there's a number of businesses that I've worked with over the years that I look at the, the CEOs and say, wow, you know, almost want to thank them because I walked away with these people are exceptionally bright, built tremendous teams, but at the same time recognize that they can't do it all. And as a result, surround themselves with appropriate advisors, appropriate staff. And I think that's why they get the job done so effectively. And it had to be incredible to work with Google at that time. One thing that Tim alluded to earlier on was around mentors at West Point in the military. As you were, you know, building this career in finance, were there any particular mentors that were very close to you and had a big impact in your career? You know, I hate to say that's one thing that I probably felt I did very poorly uh, up until recently is my West Point and just overall network of people that I could just bounce ideas off of. And look, don't get me wrong. I would say throughout my career, I've asked people for insight, but I always felt a little bit guilty about going and using people's time. As you can imagine, the CEOs that you're dealing with or the people you're dealing with are extremely busy. And I didn't want to feel as though I was taking them away from their job number one, which was running their business. So now looking back, I would say that to be successful, not only in the military, but also during transition out of the military to running a business, I would say that actually building your network outside of your day-to-day work is extremely important. And I can tell you, it takes effort, but you get so much leverage from it that it pays back dividends very, very quickly. And that was the one thing that I would say I had a little bit of disconnect with, because at West Point, it was about me being all that I could be, right? Being the best person, honing yourself, making yourself as sharp as possible, and not relying on others as much. And again, that was my my own personal mistake that I think I made there. But I carried that through many, many years. And looking back, I would say that my big advice is, hey, look, build your network, leverage people that you know can be helpful, and obviously be respectful. But at the same time, build those networks because they can be extremely powerful. And yeah, no, it's super helpful advice. In terms of what you're doing now, like you recently went to more of the investment side of the house. I think we'd love to hear more about that transition and what you're focused on now. 
a number of years ago, as you mentioned, investment banking chews up a lot of people, but I enjoyed it. And it's natural for a lot of people to go from the sell side to the buy side. I didn't get the memo till later in life that I needed to move over. I should move over. And I just started coming across more and more opportunities. And as I saw these opportunities, I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm sending a lot of work to the PE firms, and which is great, and have a lot of friends there. But there's actually situations where I think I could add value uh, to these companies directly. And so I always felt a little bit, okay, I'm effectively collecting a toll for connecting the pieces, but I'd like to be more involved with the companies after the deal is done. I started to think that maybe it was time for me to transition. So that's why I started running into a few people that just happened to be West Pointers. I mean, that's the funny thing. As I was making this transition in my head about, all right, who should I talk to? Uh, just started pulling together all the pieces. Every one of them started turning up to be a West Pointer. And it didn't start out that way. When we started forming DHC, we said, here are the capabilities we need. And then the network, as it started developing, it all boiled down to previous grads. And I would say that we've been very happy with the results. I could talk more about why, but it's one of those things where when you get to a point in life and you say, look, I really want to focus on things that make a difference and I want to do it with people that I know I can trust, it became pretty clear that the names that were falling in front of us had that shared common background. Yeah, I think that's also something here with this podcast, actually, that we're trying to facilitate as well. is like highlighting what other grads are doing so that maybe it's not as random when you find another grad in this space and you just happen to work you know, together, but rather it's part of the like collective community, I'd say. That's amazing to hear. I recall going to the Integrity website and being amazed at the number of West Pointers there and was super curious to hear if it was by happenstance, which it sounds like it was, or if it was something that you focused on. I'd love to dive a little bit more into that now in terms of where you all are focused with mobility, infrastructure, as well as digital security. How did you guys land on those sectors and where are you focused now? I would say that one thing that was very important to us as we started pulling this together is we wanted to do something that mattered. You know, you, you reach a point in your career where you simply look back at the body of your work and you feel good about what you've done, that it made a difference. But now we all sat down and said, we can obviously focus on a number of companies that can certainly make money and provide decent returns, but does it really matter? Creating uh, emojis that are that much more exciting might provide some returns, but really doesn't matter. And I, I apologize to anybody who makes emojis. But when we said, what does matter? And it was very clear that the nation runs on and is protected by various things. And in terms of infrastructure, we've heard that many times. So we felt we needed to address some of the shortcomings there. So we focused on mobility and obviously the transfer of goods and services is important to keeping the economy humming. And then on the flip side, keeping it safe and secure as it moves from one spot to another, uh, protecting the country is important to us. So we, we've got a fairly broad mandate with regards to uh, mobility and then security. I would say that there's literally thousands of companies that we can work with. At the same time, the ones that we've identified, we feel that can actually make a difference and can matter. That's great, Chris. One last question before we move on to like our next segment. In terms of being on the investment side now and working with companies in that capacity versus on the advisory side, is there one you particularly have a stronger affinity for at this point? The issue that we're dealing with is that most of the companies that we're investing in, we're also advising. 
And by that, I mean, we want to roll up our sleeves. And while we're making the decision of putting capital behind something, we want to make sure that we're aligned with regards to the future roadmap. We don't want to be a spreadsheet organization. We don't want to simply put in capital and then think that our job is done. I'm very happy the companies that we're working with recognize that value add. And as a result, we sort of can marry our, our strengths along with our capital. Great. Thank you. We're going to move on to our third segment, the SOP or standard operating procedure. In this segment, we're going to talk about the personal routines, habits, and words to live by that have been instrumental to your success. First and foremost, what's your typical day and week like, and how would you structure it? So I would say that that's probably the hardest thing to pin down is what's typical. Uh, there are certain habits that I think I've formed over the years that have been very beneficial. One of them is working out every day. I probably work out too much, but it's important for me to make sure that I have a fair amount of physical exercise on a daily basis. And that has really helped, I guess, get through stressful times and pulls you away far enough from the work that you can actually see through and solve problems while doing that. So it's very important is your personal health and tied with that is nutrition. I think that it's important to treat yourself like an athlete, regardless of your age, because if you want to win in this business, you've got to be physically fit. And just the mental pressure that you're going to put yourself under is enormous. If you want to play in the game and you want to be at the, at the top of the game, you have to act like it. And that goes for body and mind. But those are two things that I think are, are fairly important is nutrition and exercise, just to make sure that physically you're prepared. And then mentally, I think it's a constant challenge. You want to make sure that you're always pushing yourself mentally. You can get into a rut very easily in most professions. One of the reasons I felt I needed to change jobs after five or seven years and just move to another firm was I felt, okay, I've learned enough at this place, no longer challenged in terms of what I'm facing. And those organizations were great, but you, you sort of reach a point where I felt I needed to change in order to grow. And without that constant mental pushing, it would have been, I think, a much shorter career in investment banking. One final point I would add is that I mentioned before flying and scuba diving. Those activities also keep me on my toes. I've been now, I think, in my 40th year of flying and continue to fly myself for business around the world. That also, it's different enough for my day job that it's relaxing but it's also in and of itself very challenging because you can't make mistakes. And flying in and of itself is not tolerant of a lackadaisical attitude. So it forces me to be prepared and approach it with the same level of professionalism that I approach my day job. A few things, I'm riffing off what you said. This podcast episode is giving me flashbacks of both Ben Falls and General Stan McChrystal's. All three of you are quite zealous about uh, physical fitness and also about nutrition. It almost feels like this should be a DPE-approved podcast, given how you all really <laughs> touch on that point. And then it sounds like flying might give you also a insider's advantage in terms of being able to get to one place to another very fast. Well, there were a couple of situations where I did win deals because I showed up in person before other people could even get on their commercial flight. But uh, those were few and far between. The reality is flying is one of those things you just can't fake. You can't lie to Mother Nature. You can't kid yourself. So it gets back to that self-awareness. And when you know what you're capable of and you know your limitations, it can be extremely enjoyable. 
and at the same time, very, very productive in terms of just being able to cover a lot of ground in very short periods of time. So as I said, flying, learned at West Point, and it was one of those skill sets that I've just continued to build on over the years. In terms of work-wise, can you talk about what the typical week and day is like? And again, it's atypical, but just getting a semblance for how you might structure your day between meetings or between the two companies you work on? Sure. As I said, every day involves some sort of physical exercise, and that usually bends to when I have meetings. But you always make sure that you have a certain block of time that you can devote to that. It was different before COVID versus post-COVID. Prior to COVID, the video calls were few and far in between because it almost showed that you weren't willing to put the effort in if you just went with a conference call. So if that's what your pitch was, if that's how you were presenting yourself, you knew you were at a distinct disadvantage to somebody who showed up. Now that's a little bit different. When I was doing meetings, I would try to do two meetings a day in person if it was here on the peninsula, sometimes three, but then it was, again, a little bit challenging because it's hard to be at your best for three meetings. Two meetings you could usually pull off. Now in the world of Zoom, I have typically five meetings a day, and those last anywhere between 30 minutes and an hour. Uh, Again, much more efficient in terms of time, being able to really get to the point and, I guess, spend more time on business versus just the normal pleasantries. So I would say that the overall level of productivity has gone up, but the interaction has become a little bit more difficult in terms of personal interaction on these on these Zoom calls. So if I have five calls a day, I would say that that's fairly typical. You know, you get up early in the morning, you try to get your workouts in. I don't think that's any different than what anybody else is doing. I would say the only piece that I'm probably working on now is the in-person meetings again. I just spent a couple of days with the business that we're looking at and I'm doing that, I would say, one to two days a week now, flying to Texas or some other place to have in-person meetings. I've got to ask this simply because Lance and I might try to take up flying after this recording. What's the percent of flights you fly yourself and what's the percent you just take on a Delta, Alaska, United? I would say it's 100% flying myself. I'm guessing you're able to just figure out what the local airport is that you can fly into. There's thousands of airports that aren't served by the commercial airlines. And so, yeah, it's very, very easy. And the software that's available today to help you through all of that, it makes it really easy. It's something you have to commit yourself to. You can't take it as a a hobby. It's really got to be something that you feel you're passionate about. But as I said, it's been an incredible tool to help me over the years, both personally and professionally. We talked about it before the recording, um, and Lance brought this up, but these days you run both a venture fund and a SPAC. In terms of time spent between the two, and time and effort, very fluid, I think you said it's roughly 50-50. Oh, that's correct. I mean, right now, but at any particular day, you're going to be spending uh, 100% of one day on uh, direct investing, and another day you'll be spending 75 on the SPAC, and there's no clean way to, to divide it up. It really is depending on who's calling that day, what meetings you have set up, and what demands the time and attention at that particular point. Totally. And it feels very much like there's synergies between the two. There certainly is. I mean, obviously, anything that's not ready for public markets is something that we look at privately. And right now, the public markets are on hold. So there's just a lot more to do on the private side. In the SOP, and we talked about habits. How about any words or themes or leadership principles that you follow? Well, the one thing I would say that 
has made a big difference in my life more recently is that throughout your career, you spend time, like one of the disadvantages, again, we have from West Point is that we're surrounding ourselves with people with high integrity. And when you get out into the real world, that's just not the case. And it's a hard lesson to learn. And I came very close in a couple of situations with people who were uh, incredibly unethical and all they got caught. Uh, fortunately, never did business with them, but you know, you read about them later and you sort of get the sense, wow, this person, they just lied. They just straight up lied and with a straight face. And they were just trying to do bad things in terms of bad deals or just things that weren't right. So you have to understand that when you come out of West Point, you have the, this attitude that maybe everybody's like this. And the reality is it's not. So when we started forming the SPAC and the, our investment vehicle, we said, look, we only want to deal with people that we can trust. And again, that is why, because if you do that, it, the amount of friction in any sort of transaction, any sort of dialogue goes down dramatically. If I want to do a deal with you, I've got to bring in a ton of attorneys and look over my shoulder every minute to make sure that things are happening the way that you said they were going to. It, that's just incredibly inefficient as opposed to working with people that, hey, look, when you tell me you're going to do something or you tell me something can get done, I know it's going to happen. It's just a very different way to conduct business. And so that's sort of where we are now. You know, we only really want to do business with people we can trust and people who've proven that they're trustworthy. That ties on to a couple of themes, both military and what other podcast guests have said. On the friction note, military history with Clausewitz, uh, friction just abounds everywhere. And then the second is, especially McCaffrey and McChrystal talked about trust being the currency of the realm and how trust just makes everything so much faster. It does. And it's also, unfortunately, it's one of those things that people tend to abuse. Uh, you know, they say, trust me. And <laughs> as soon as somebody says that, you almost know that you can't. But I think people's actions speak much more louder than their words and their backgrounds. Once you understand what a person has done, uh, you can very quickly come to the determination as to whether or not they should be part of your team or not. Recently, I've heard this quote a few times, and it's really resonated, is that trust is collected in drops and then lost in buckets. I think that's very true. That's obviously a word of caution to all of us that we have to treat every interaction with people that we value uh, very carefully. Never assume that people heard you properly. Always double check because those misunderstandings even if people are well-intentioned, can really destroy reputations. And it's, again, being from West Point, I feel as though it's doubly important because what we do not only reflects on us, but on every other classmate for the past 200 years, it's very important that we do justice for the sacrifices and all that they've done for the country. So Chris, we're going to transition into our last segment here. And this is generally where we end the podcast with a final question. And the final segment is called Giving Back. Essentially, a big part of this podcast is for those that are transitioning from the military or different parts in their career. And like, if you could go back, if, you know, Chris was graduating now or was leaving the military, is there any particular advice? I know this podcast is actually full of a lot of nuggets of wisdom, but is there anything else that for someone that is kind of just getting started uh, today in this market, like any sets of principles or advice that you might have for them? Well, the one thing I would say, and, and unfortunately, it, it, people find this out the hard way, is that pe when people say thank you for your service, that's basically all they mean. They won't do you any favors after that. So don't expect people, just because you served in the military, just because you sacrificed, just because you really did a job that they weren't willing or unable to do, uh, that they feel as though they owe you something. And that's just not the case. You have to understand that the way you make it is going to be on your own. And people do not feel as though they are going to help you along the way. And I know that sounds pretty brutal, 
But if that's the attitude that you have and the understanding that you have, it makes it much easier for the transition. Know that you were a soldier, know that you built a lot of relationships and fine tune your own skill sets. But as you get to the civilian world, it's very different skill sets, very different people, and you have to learn how to adapt. Don't keep on talking about what you did in the military and expect people to appreciate that. Learn what's important to achieve your own goals in that civilian world, and that's what you have to become. Again, there's lots of useful skills that will translate, but you start talking about, hey, when I was in the desert or when I was in ranger school or when I was in the military, that'll last one conversation before people realize, okay, this person is just not transitioning to the civilian world. Take those lessons that you learned, embody them, but don't keep on reminding people about them because they honestly many times don't care. Super helpful. Um, Unfortunately, Chris, that's all we have time for. Really appreciate you carving out some time here and chatting with Tim and I. But before I let you go, um, and I know you were a runner, but who do you have winning the big uh, tournament of March Madness? St. Peter's. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Be a nice bracket. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I would, could make quite a bit of money off that one. I was like Villanova. I know it's a long shot, but uh, probably going to be Villanova again this year. Fingers crossed. I have one more question, which is, you talked about meetings. Is this your fifth meeting of the day or is this your sixth meeting of the day? This is number six. Yeah, no, today was pretty efficient. Amazing. Um, Chris, Lance, thank you all so very much. Thank you, guys. On Point is a production of the WPAOG Broadcast Network. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and join us each week for a new episode. Thank you for listening.